Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hi, FNS On Air listeners. It's one of the co-producers, Molly Cornfield, again. Welcome back to ASRM Part 2, recorded live at ASRM in New Orleans. Over the next hour, we will speak with the authors of the first... And get a glimpse of the year to come from our incoming ASRM president, Paula Amato. And we'll finish out the hour with the next generation as my co-producer, Michael Simone, introduces the medical students attending ASRM through the Career Pathway Program. So let's get started. Hi, this is Molly Cornfield again, and I am very excited to be interviewing our ASRM prize paper first place award winner, uh, Dr. Manuel Viotti, and his abstract was entitled Assessing the Risk-Benefit of Mosaic Embryo Transfers Using 3,500-plus Clinical Outcome Data Points. So I'll have um, Dr. Viotti and his co-author uh, introduce themselves and where they're from. My name is Manuel Viotti. I am with KindBody and I run their uh, PGT lab in New, in New Jersey. That's called Kind Labs. And then I also am part of the Zuvis Foundation. It's a research foundation in, in, in San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, and I'm Svetlana Majunkova. I'm director of uh, reproductive genetics at Create Fertility Center and also adjunct professor at um, University of Toronto. Incredible. Well, congratulations on your award. We'd love to have you give us just a brief summary of what your abstract was. Yeah, sure. So this is really, I mean, we're representing here a a pretty big group, a consortium of um, clinics and centers that wanted to pull their data on mosaic embryo transfers. Uh, Then to come up with real hard evidence and, and, you know, clinical outcomes to then be able to learn what are the risks and benefits associated with the transfer of, of mosaic embryos. So we've started this about three or four years ago. Four years ago, It yes. started very small, like just couple a centers. couple of centers. <laughs> and then, you know, over time, more wanted to contribute and participate. Um, because with numbers come, you know, the power of analysis. Like the, you, you start seeing the real trends and you can really dig deep and uh, find, you know, nuances in, in mosaicism and, and get new, new findings. So right now we are about, we have about, uh, 3,000, just over 3,000 mosaic embryo transfers in the registry. Uh, we have uh, about s- just over 600 uh, babies born of mosaic embryo transfers with detailed information of the babies. And then uh, um, from 600, I think 25 pregnancies of mosaic embryo transfers, we have prenatal testing data so we can track what happens to the chromosomal normalcy or abnormalcy, if you want, abnormality uh, during, during the pregnancy. Yeah, so I, I think what is the, the take-home uh, message from our um, study and, and very important to all that are involved in uh, treating patients that are undergoing PGTA is that um, there is a gradation of uh, success of outcomes when you have euploid embryo and then different categories of mosaic embryos. Definitely 
uh, all mosaic embryos form uh, a category that should be considered that has lower uh, implantation potential and lower ongoing pregnancy rate, uh, with uh, low segmentals being the, the best uh, group of mosaic embryos and moving down to high segmentals, uh, low complex mosaic embryos and high complex, complex mosaic embryos with the lowest uh, developmental potential. So all in all, I think that um, uh, considering transferring mosaic embryos, we can truly optimize uh, treatment of patients that are using PGTA testing. Yeah, that when we looked at the babies that were born, it looks actually that they are indistinguishable from babies born of euploidemia transfers, which, which is kind of surprising. So, for, you know, when we transfer a mosaic embryo, it has lower chances of reaching an ongoing pregnancy, lower implantation rates and higher miscarriage rates, especially very early after implantation. There seems to be a lot of loss there. But then as the pregnancy progresses, if, if it progresses, once a baby is born, we cannot really distinguish babies from those born of euploid embryo transfers if we, I mean, by the metrics at least that we were measuring. So weight at birth, length, length of gestation, and we were cataloging also um, if there were gross abnormalities at birth. So, and the rates are, are in line with what you would expect of normal pregnancies or euploid embryo transfers. So it, it kind of, it tells you that mosaicism has, has a negative effect early on, yeah. but then if those pregnancies do persist by the time the baby is born, either the aneuploid compartment has completely disappeared or it's completely irrelevant and maybe it's focused on a tissue that doesn't manifest in a clinical manifestation. Um, and that goes really hand in hand with what's been shown now uh, in experimental models of self-correction. So euploid cells outcompeting aneuploid cells uh, and converting an embryo that is mosaic into a uh, euploid, completely euploid uh, birth, which is also then um, supported by the findings of the prenatal testing. So when you take snapshots during the pregnancy by CVS or amniocentesis, uh, in the vast, vast majority of times, um, we get the results are, are completely normal. Uh, however, this process doesn't seem to be 100% efficient. efficient There's like, um, well, we have seven cases in our, in our database, so it, it amounts to about 1.2% of cases where that same mosaicism persists during the pregnancy. Like we see the same mosaicism. So, same um, defect affecting both placenta and the fetus, right? Right, right. And, and sometimes uh, correlating with, um, uh, you know, some abnormalities observed during ultrasound. So of these seven cases, four either uh, abort, like aborted or were terminated because of vast uh, abnormalities. So there is a small but real risk when transferring a mosaic embryo that the mosaicism might persist. And that's part of that risk-benefit analysis that we wanted to um, pinpoint. And, and I think having this registry being multi-center involving different disciplines and different practices really gives us power to be able to capture these 1.2 cases that will end up in some abnormalities and learn more, um, you know, which type of uh, chromosomal aberrations even seen in mosaic, in, in mosaic proportion can persist and what are the aberrations or abnormalities associated with these um, uh, geno uh, genomic variants uh, that we're seeing in pre-implantation embryos. So we, we're very uh, happy that we still have enthusiastic centers uh, 
wanting to join the registry and boosting our numbers and probably our uh, ability to uh, be more precise in the analysis that we're able to do because going down to assessing by chromosome aberration and what is the relevance of these aberrations on um, early pregnancy and also birth outcomes, I think it's very important. Can I just do a plug for the registry? If you're listening and you're a center, a clinic that transfers mosaic embryos and wants to participate in this effort, uh, because really with increasing numbers, we're refining our findings. Things have exactly. changed over time. Uh, we are, and there's a lot of analysis we cannot yet do just because the numbers are still too small for them. Like for example, we want to know individually which chromosome, chromosome. What, what, you know, what's the potential for each mosaicism in each chromosome, loss or gain and so on and so forth. So we do need more more. Um, so if you want to participate, email us. We have, a, we have an email. It's mosaicregistry at gmail.com. And uh, we'll, we'll gladly onboard you. This is a very academic collaboration. Um, and it's open. Yeah, it's open to anyone. Exactly. Um, we're, you know, we're collecting now data from different technologies and platforms for, for PGTA. And the, the nice thing there is that we can then compare and contrast as well what is working best, what are the thresholds that are work best, working best, and have a large, large data set to, to come up with these findings. Yeah. And, I, and just as um, uh, another information that probably uh, will be useful at the time when our colleagues are listening to this, uh, we are uh, soon to go live with uh, the website where you can have access to real, real-time uh, evidence uh, from this mosaic transfers, and we're updating the calculator that uh, will help or guide the selection of mosaic embryos for transfer based on currently available data. So as we grow our numbers, obviously this um, the prediction models will uh, will change. Better, better. Yeah. are getting better and better. Yeah, thank you so much for this work. It's going to change practice. I can't wait to have it um, published, but even that 1.2% number, so most of us in our centers where we're doing, you know, we may be done 20 or 50 mosaic embryo transfers. We haven't seen the pregnancies affected later in gestation, and uh, we've seen one or two case reports maybe, but knowing, okay, I can counsel my patients 1.2%. I imagine with further refinement and more data, we might say, oh, these, these different we're types of mosaicism are more or less likely to lead right. to a, a pregnancy affected in the second and third trimester, and that will be just so helpful for our patients. Exactly. Do you guys plan to follow the children long term? Is yes. that part of the, the research yes. project? Yes, that's that's our uh, probably that that's our biggest um, uh, wish, and and we work towards that. So we we do encourage centers uh, that are contributing this data, if possible, to uh, collect and uh, try to find ways to uh, follow to have this follow up neonatal and probably long term uh, developmental. Uh, outcomes. Um, I think that all of this is reassuring because all the um, uh, follow-up studies so far on IVF-conceived, tested or non-tested um, embryo um, babies, uh, embryos that resulted in pregnancies and babies didn't show any um, uh, accumulation or, or any abnormalities that may pinpoint down to uh, mosaicism, but this is something that uh, we do need evidence to uh, prove if it's right or wrong. We definitely want to yeah. move in that direction. In yeah. that direction, um, yes. We, 
in, in Ontario, I have to comment on this, that uh, in Ontario we have a national uh, database or provincial database that would um, follow up systematically all pregnancies and neonatal um, and um, developmental outcomes up to six years of age. That's uh, initial goal. So this data would be coming up um, soon. Uh, the registry started at 2016. So, you know, as the data comes out, probably contributing back to our registry and compiling that from other centers will uh, give us the power to comment on the developmental potential. Well, thank you so much for this work. I'm really looking forward to reading the manuscript, hopefully in F&S. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, you for, all, for all you've done. And, and I just have to acknowledge the contribution of, um, yeah. uh, of Francesca Spinella and Andrea Besser. You know, the work, uh, their contribution is really essential to making sure the uh, growth of the registry um, Obviously, Manuel is, uh, is uh, the spearhead of this, but uh, I, I, they're not uh, able to join us at this podcast, but their contribution is... Uh, yeah, and also... also Everyone you know, else yeah, all the that contributes. It, it takes, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of work. You know, we collect data from you know, the demographics to the embryology to the PGT out, you know, results to the outcomes. So it's a lot of putting a lot of data together. And so, yeah, it's a lot of work, but I think the the fruits of the work are really showing and paying off. Exactly, exactly. And uh, we want to thank um, uh, probably everyone in those centers that are uh, taking the initiative. And it's a lot of work to uh, put this, all of this together. So, yeah. Is the website live yet uh, where we can find the data as it accumulates? Uh, yes, I, I think it's, it's in, in very final stages. It, it will be live probably in a month. Yeah, we're, um, we're just putting the final touches on, touches it. on um, it. And, you know, the, you're going to have uh, you know, information on how to contribute, how to add the data live and analyze the data. But also, you know, something that a lot of uh, genetic counselors and, and physicians have used is that, that app, that calculator, you know, that you plug in the results of the PGTA. What is the mosaic, the, the features of mosaicism? What is the morphology of the embryo? And then it gives you a number that you can compare to other embryos in that site, in that cycle in that batch and um, and rank them according to their likelihood of positive clinical outcome so i think a lot of people are we we can track the numbers and it's uh, a lot of people use it and uh, the the new improved one will come out very soon we're uh, we're looking forward to announcing it very soon exactly great thank you so much thank, thank you for you. speaking with us today thank, thank you. you very much thanks Hello, FNS family. This is Michael Simone, one of the executive producer of the Fertility and Sterility On Air podcast, and we are coming to you from ASRM 2023. And now I am joined by David Pepin. Please introduce yourself. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm David Pepin. I'm an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and associate director of the Pediatric Surgical Research Labs at Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, I, I operate a lab there studying female reproductive development. So, Dr. Pepin, you gave a talk this morning on novel non-hormonal contraception. Why don't you just give our, our listeners, listeners a brief overview on the topics that were touched upon? Right. So, um, I, I think many of your listeners will know AMH as you know, something that you measure in the blood that gives you a sense of the size of your ovarian reserve, so more for you know, diagnostic. Or, but in fact, I'm interested in the hormone itself and using the hormones exogenously to control follicular activity. 
So in, in, in the past decade, I've been working on developing different tools, be it gene therapy or recombinant proteins, that could be used as contraceptives, but also that could be used for various applications where we need to control follicle dynamics, so be it uh, a controlled ovarian stimulation, um, uh, oncofertility, so protecting uh, the fertility of women that receive chemotherapy, um, as well as uh, we're starting to study ovarian aging and onset of menopause. And so when you say using AMH as a way to manipulate things, has this already been used in the past? What other aspects has AMH been used for, if anything at all? No, and, and that's, that's an interesting point um, that AMH has lagged behind other hormones. So, you know, if we think of uh, oral contraceptives like steroids, you know, they were discovered in the 30s and the early 60s, they were available to patients. And what made that possible is basically advances in chemical synthesis, producing wow. synthetic estrogens and progestins. Then you've got things like gonadotropins and GnRH agonists, late 60s, then come to market early 80s. And to do that, we also had needed advances in making synthetic peptides and things that would last long enough in the blood to be you know, pharmacologically active. And AMH has lagged. So AMH was cloned in 1986. And presumably, and uh, you know, this is what I've been working on, is as effective in controlling follicle dynamics as FSH or LH, is as powerful of a normal, if not more. And yet it is not... You know, made its way to the clinic. And why is that? It's because it's a very complex hormone. It's a large molecule. It needs to be cleaved to be activated. Uh, it actually forms a complex. And if you don't make it right and you don't isolate it without dissociating it, it loses its activity. So basically, the, its application is lagged because we, had, we didn't have access to the recombinant protein. So part of the technology that I developed is a way to produce and purify this protein as well as a means to deliver it using gene therapy. So I've got both recombinant protein and gene therapy. Now, if you give this to, say, a mouse or a rat or a cat, what ends up happening is you reach super physiological levels of AMH, two to three orders of magnitude higher than your, your endogenous level, and follicular development grinds to a halt. So primordial follicles, which are normally you know, activating at about 1,000 per month, that goes down to less than half of that. And the few follicles that do activate just cannot mature. So they're heavily suppressed, they don't mature normally, they don't grow, and they don't make all their way to a natural follicle that's capable of ovulation. So you're stopping ovulation by acting very early on, uh, which is in contrast to current hormonal contraceptive where you're acting you know, in that last 14 days or so, you're disrupting the signal for ovulation by disrupting gonadotropins at the end of the life of the follicle. We're acting you know, six months before that when it begins its growth. And is this a reversible process or is this something that once you kind of start that it's done for the ovarian reserve? So it kind of depends what your application is. So if we're talking about gene therapy, it's irreversible just because once you give the virus from then on, you know, the levels will remain super physiological for the rest mm -hmm. of the lifetime mm -hmm. of the animal or if, if this is ever applied to humans, presumably even humans. Now, we also have recombinant protein. So that recombinant protein has a 24-hour half-life. So you need to inject it every day. As long as you take it, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of a delay for its effect to take its course because follicles that are already at the andral stage can still, you know, continue their evolution and ovulate. But once you've run out of those, you've got no new follicles entering the, the growing pool. So if you do that, you again achieve contraception. But when you stop taking the recombinant protein, 
uh, at least in mice, by about 30 days, those follicles again come back. Got it. And you're perfectly fertile. So this is pretty interesting to me, but given the super physiological levels of AMH, you're actually stopping follicular development when my brain would think like, oh man, really high levels of AMH, we're going to see many follicles being made, but this is not the case. Right, it's the exact opposite of what we're used to, right? If you have a lot of follicles growing, those follicles are making AMH, and that's the endogenous function mm -hmm. of AMH. It's a negative feedback. In Got it. If you have too many follicles, your AMH levels go up, and it's suppressing the activation of new follicle into the pool. That's how we maintain homeostasis, so you never have too many follicles. If you have too few follicles, AMH levels go down. Now you're enhancing activation. You're you know, putting your foot off the brake a little bit, and then you've got new follicles activating and entering the pool. So we're actually just reusing the system, but then going you know, two magnitudes higher to really grind it to a halt. And so we'll come back to contraception in a second, but ultimately it would be great, like you said, if you could infuse this into someone's cycle plan for IVF if you're worried about hyperstimulation and maybe actually bring down their response, right? Is that something that might be possible down the line? So this is not something that we've tried. You know, our first thought was actually to do the opposite, to get more follicles. Sure, I mean, that's the goal. <laughs> and, and, and that is also counterintuitive to a certain extent because now I'm using a suppressive factor that's a contraceptive, but I, I'm not using it to get a larger initial pool. What I'm doing is stopping the follicles from entering the growth pool. And if you stop them for long enough, you have many follicles that are poised to activate. The moment you relieve that barrier, they come back as a wave. So you have, they're very synchronized. They all hit you know, primary stage at five days in. They'll reach secondary stage 15 days in. They'll reach enteral stage 30 days in. And it's this synchronization that allows us to precisely control the moment of stimulation and get an entire cohort of ventral follicles. They're all at the same stage, all ready to be stimulated. And if we do that in a mouse, we get three times as many eggs. Wow, that's awesome. And so what about this contraception aspect of this whole process? How are you going with that? What are the studies showing in the animals that you've tested this in? Right, so we're actually a little bit ahead in terms of applications to companion animals, so veterinary applications. So we're, you know, we've talked to the FDA, we're about to enter clinical trials using gene therapy for, for cats. So particularly we're interested in controlling overpopulation of cats. So right now the way we're, we control cat overpopulation is you have to capture the cat. So it's TNR, trap, neuter, uh, and release. Mm -hmm. So you have to uh, capture the cat, you need a veterinarian to do the surgery, to the spaying surgery, and then you know you need post-operative care. So that's difficult to do, you know, for feral animals sure. in in, uh, in the field. What what we have as an option now uh, we're trying to develop as an option is a one-time injection. Obviously, now you don't need uh, presumably a, a surgery, so that you know simplifies things quite a bit. Give a one-time injection for females only, and then they're contracepted hopefully for the rest of their lives. Wow. Where do you see this going after this or maybe in the human version of this? Um, what are you doing with that aspect? Right. So, you know, there may be a need for permanent contraception in humans. I think it's a smaller need. Uh, so what we're trying to do actually is to, to you know, use the same mechanism of action, which is to act on the MH pathway, but not necessarily through gene therapy. So we have a recombinant protein. Recombinant protein works well as essentially no side effects, which is you know, great because it's, you know, it only has one receptor. It's very targeted, but you, for most women, probably having to inject yourself every day you would not be very uh, amenable. Uh, and so we're trying to develop uh, small molecules that can reproduce this effect. So something that would be comparable to the current oral contraceptive pill, something orally available that will act on the MH receptor. So we'll basically replicate the effect of the ligand. 
I mean, this sounds all like incredible work, Dr. Pepin. Thank you for so much for sharing this with our listeners. It's, uh, where can they read about this more or anything like that? We have a, a paper in PNES where we've talked about drug screens uh, and, and identified actually repurposed drugs that can act on this pathway. Now we're pushing as tool compounds to, to derive drugs from it. And also we've recently published in, in Nature Communications the, the use of gene therapy in cats for permanent contraception. And I'll give a little push to try to publish an FNS too. That, that's, that'll be the next one. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Pevin. Pleasure talking with you. Thank you. So this is Molly Cornfield again, and I have the pleasure to interview Linda Griffith, who gave one of our plenary talks today. If you could introduce yourself, Linda, and what your talk was about. Hi, I'm Linda Griffith. I'm a professor of biological engineering at MIT, where I also direct a center for gynepathology research which serves to bring clinician scientists and engineers together around problems in especially endometriosis and adenomyosis. And my talk today was about how we can use systems biology to analyze patients with endometriosis and adenomyosis to decide if there's different subgroups of patients and then build mimics of those patients in the lab using biopsy specimens to recreate them in little microfluidic devices and test efficacy of new drugs. Very exciting, and I love thinking about that there are these subtypes because clinically we see it all the time where surgically and the symptoms just don't correlate, and then with fertility outcomes. So, something you mentioned in your talk that really was interesting to me is that there's so little research interest in adenomyosis specifically, probably endometriosis to some degree as well. Why do you think that there's been such a lag in research in that field? How do you think we could improve this? So for one thing, it's really difficult to diagnose patients. Um, when you do surgery for endometriosis, you don't necessarily see adenomyosis. And unless the medical community is trained to be evaluating patients for the possible presence of it via the imaging methods and MRI and ultrasound that have been described in the field, you don't know. And you wonder if the 70% of patients with stage 1-2 may have a lot of their symptoms coming from adeno because the studies that have been done suggest very high levels of comorbidity. There's very little funding. NIH has only ever funded two adenomyosis grants. And we tried to get funding from the DOD through an endometriosis mechanism, and we called it endometriosis of the myometrium. And we were thrown out of the program because we were deemed not responsive. So I think it's been very hard to get funding. There's no training, and the methods are still not definitive unless you have a hysterectomy with pathology. Yep, that's exactly what I learned as an OB resident. Well, you can diagnose adeno when you do the hysterectomy, but most of my fertility patients, they don't want a hysterectomy, um, of course, so this is really exciting. You mentioned that adeno and endo are sister or twin diseases in your talk. Um, as you start to look at the molecular and genetic um, pathways in these disorders, do you think they're going to be even more alike than we realize or diverge more? So we're still really early stages, and I call out some excellent investigators in the field like Stacy Mismer with her What is Endometriosis study looking at the omics of the endometrium, endometriosis lesions. And the microenvironments have some similar features. It's really strange how the endometrium can invade muscle. It can invade the bowel. It can invade the bladder. It can invade the myometrium. And Carcinoma doesn't even invade like that. So I think we will find some similar features in how the cells are invading, but also the microenvironment with hormones and nutrients will give some differences to the different microenvironments of the lesions, maybe requiring different therapies.
I liked when you said these are clues, but not yet answers, which yeah. is a lot of our, uh, our bench research right now, but hopefully we'll have some answers coming down the pipeline. Uh, what surprised you the most as you were working um, on this work? I, yeah, so I came into endometriosis and adenomyosis very late in my career, um, very established. And I, th I think this incredible heterogeneity and mismatch between symptoms and, and physical presentation was so surprising to learn and how, how much of a faith people put on stage one through four, including patients and a patient who's diagnosed with stage one who's in crippling pain you know, she's psychologically damaged because she's not, it, it, it's like she's not heard. You know, it takes a very skilled clinician to help patients like that understand that they are listened to. So I, I feel coming in as an engineer, the clinical dimensions were extremely surprising in how messy the clinical landscape is, how hard it is to phenotype patients for things like pain and other symptoms and make correlations to molecular mechanisms. It's, it's, it's just way behind where we are with cancer. I mentioned in my talk, I got diagnosed with breast cancer right after starting to work with Keith Isaacson. And it was very straightforward. There was so much data, so much data. And, uh, you know, we just don't have that kind of, you know, not that we're home free with breast cancer, but I just felt very well taken care of that there were some answers. Yeah, I love how you describe the stages. They almost did a disservice for our patients. I think surgically it's useful to know where the endometriosis is, but sometimes I think, hey, just describe it in your operative note because sometimes the stages can almost devalue pain just as you describe. Or sometimes my patients do pretty well with just a little medical therapy, even if they're a stage three or four. And so there's just this huge variation that we need to learn more about. <laughs> well, it is. it does have features, as I said at the very end of my talk, my colleague, Dr. Mickey Tall, is looking at common features and others in the field. You know, the group at Michigan, Susie Asani and Andrew Shrepp and Stacey Miss, we're all working together to think about mechanisms of pain common across chronic inflammatory diseases and things that also present with discordance between an image and the symptoms like TMJ. You can have terrible erosion and not have symptoms, and at the same time, you can have what looks like full, nice cartilage on your temporal mandibular joint and have uh, TMJ symptoms of pain in your jaw. So we can learn a lot by the cross-disciplinary comparison. You are tackling an enormous issue here. Thank you for uh, approaching that, and that's wonderful. What do you think is going to be the next, you know, the most compelling clinical relevance of your work? What do you, and you can be, you can, don't have to be scientific here, you can envision um, what's going to be the clinical implication uh, that you would hope? The thing that has been driving me for 15 years is getting new types of therapies into the clinic that are not hormonal and that are targeted to specific pathways that we know patients have and will be effective. So all of our work to build models of patients are directed toward that, and I think we're moving closer because I have many companies contacting me, asking me to use our models to test efficacy in patient groups. So I think the contributions we will make are to help companies feel comfortable in doing a clinical trial for new drugs with new mechanisms and that these drugs actually will be effective. So I think we will smooth the path to clinical application of new non-hormonal therapies that will be effective. And I'm very, very excited about that. Thank you for all the work you've done and the advocacy on behalf of uh, endometriosis and adenomyosis research in, in addition to the research that you're doing. So. Um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you today, and thank you for talking with us. Likewise.
Hi, it's Molly Cornfield again. So on last year's ASRM podcast, we had a wonderful interview with Dr. Michael Thomas, our outgoing ASRM president, to talk about what he had in mind for the upcoming year. And this year, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Paula Amato, our incoming ASRM president. It's great to see you, Dr. Amato, and thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me today. Hi, Molly. Thank you for having me. So my first question uh, that I'd love to know is what are your goals and what is your vision for the upcoming year during your tenure as ASRM president? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, like I mentioned in my remarks at the meeting, I don't know if people were able to hear it, but the theme of my year is going to be equity, access, and innovation. So taking those things in turn, as far as equity goes, I definitely want to continue the work that Dr. Michael Thomas did last year, he, he really made diversity, equity, and inclusion a focus of his tenure. So I, I do want to continue that work. And that to me means diversifying our membership, diversifying you know, REI providers, but also addressing health disparities amongst our, our patients. And it includes all types of diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, sexual orientation, et cetera. One of the things I was most proud of at the meeting was ASRM's new definition of infertility, which is now much more inclusive of single people and LGBT people who might need to use donor gametes to build their families. And that I think will be very helpful in terms of trying to get insurance to, to cover fertility treatment for, for these these folks. I'll keep going. Access. So, as you know, I, I've been sort of a lifelong advocate, so I'm looking forward to making this uh, a focus of my presidential year as well. Um, as you know, not everybody has insurance coverage for infertility, so there we're working with our partners at Resolve, Alliance for Fertility Preservations, and a number of other groups, both at the state level and federal level, to try and get more coverage for people. And, and similarly, there are efforts at the employer, individual employer level, to try and get more coverage for infertility treatment. And, you know, I think as providers, we're in a very sort of privileged position where we can actually impact policy and we know that we can actually influence the social determinants of health that we know lead to sometimes adverse health outcomes. So looking forward to working with everyone to, to try and increase access in particular to infertility insurance coverage, uh, but also, you know, very acutely aware that we're living in a time post-Dobbs where there's increasing government interference in um, you know, the patient-provider relationship. So we're, we're all paying a lot of attention to that, especially because it could either inadvertently or not inadvertently, but affect IVF as well. And then finally, <laughs> innovation. I promise I'll let you get to your second question, but you know, education and research is sort of like the core of what ASRM does. And I'm um, looking forward to working with our fabulous ASRM staff and our you know, professional groups, affiliate societies, special interest groups to develop the great educational program that ASRM 
programming that ASRM is known for, and that's both for providers and for patients. And, you know, to support this, the sort of innovative research in our field. Um, so I'm really looking forward to continuing to, to do that work, partnering with our international societies, uh, increasing sort of the global footprint for ASRM, you know, doing more sort of global work, working with the WHO, for example, uh, and also working with some of our sister societies like ACOG and the Menopause Society to just increase REI education amongst, you know, people maybe not necessarily in our subspecialty, but, you know, in, in OBGYN or in family medicine, et cetera, because obviously they're first line and they, they see patients with these conditions often before, you know, we do so. And then I'd like to sort of, I know REI and ASRM has become very focused on infertility, but I'd also like us to not forget that REI includes the RE part. So I'd really like to increase the focus on um, non-infertility. Obviously, infertility is very important, but things like menopause and PCOS and endometriosis that are really part of our subspecialty, but often don't get the same amount of attention that infertility does. This is going to be a really exciting year. I can't wait to see everything. I hope so. Yeah. And of course, you know, I'm the face of the organization for a year, but it really takes a village, right? You know, everything that happens at ASRM is the work of so many people, especially our ASRM staff, but also we rely so much on our member volunteers uh, that are part of the organization. So I'd like as many people who want to be involved to be involved. So, you know, please do look for opportunities to get involved in ASRM. If you need ideas, you can contact me directly. There's a volunteer form on the ASRM website, which I encourage people to, to fill out. And especially younger uh, people and tra trainees, you know, often they, they'll ask me, how do I get involved in ASRM? And, uh, you know, a really sort of easy way to get involved is to join one of the six, for example, or more than one, you know, whatever your interest areas are. And that's often the way that a lot of people first get involved in, in ASRM. And then, you know, there are other opportunities that might become available after that as well. Great. All the listening trainees, please sign up and yes. volunteer for next year. We'd love to have your help for ASRM. Yeah. And of course, you know, there's the whole suite of FNS journals, fertility and sterility and the, the other three, that all this great work we do in ASRM, whether it's research or, you know, practice guidelines or ethical guidelines, then get disseminated across the world, really, through through those journals, which are you know, very in, impactful. So I also encourage people to submit their research and fellows as well to submit their research to, to one of our journals. And I'm sure they'd love you to sign up to be reviewers too. That's another great way that you can volunteer for ASRM and for FNS. That's right. That's Help right. us choose those great pieces and see what all the cool new science is. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of which, what do you think is the most compelling research in our field? What's coming down the pipeline? What should we all be kind of looking out for? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's a lot of attention on AI these days, artificial intelligence. Uh, I, at the moment, I think it's 
mostly hype, but who knows, at some point it, it might really change what we're doing. I think it's very early, but it's definitely something I think we're all paying attention to. You know, non-invasive ways to do embryo testing, I think that's still a goal. So there's people working on that. Other areas, I'm a little biased, my, my own research <laughs> has to do with, you know, innovative assisted reproductive technologies to either treat infertility, delay ovarian aging, or prevent transmission of genetic diseases. So I think in the coming, at least in the coming decade, we'll probably see things like in vitro gametogenesis, for example, like which is, you know, making eggs from skin cells and perhaps gene editing of embryos and mitochondrial replacement therapy as a potential treatment for infertility. I think those are all potentially very exciting technologies that uh, I look forward to seeing the research in those areas in the, in the coming years. I love thinking about being at this very early stage of my career and looking back in 10 years and be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe everything we've done in this decade. Yeah, yeah so it's amazing. We're, we're in the best field there is. So. Can I say some more? Yes, you okay. can. <laughs> well, there, there's two initiatives that are coming down the pipe in the next year that I briefly want to mention. One is a report from the Donor Conceived Persons Task Force. So this is something new for ASRM. There's a whole task force of people working on uh, submitting or publishing, I guess, some recommendations to ASRM regarding the interests of donor-conceived persons, which as a group, you know, has been perhaps somewhat neglected by our field until more recently. So I look forward to the task force report on that. And then ASRM is also due to redo their strategic plan. And so that's going to be happening this year. And again, I'll be looking to as many members as possible to be involved in that process as we decide, you know, what the priorities are going to be for the next five years. So I just wanted to mention those two things briefly. Both very important initiatives. So we're looking forward to seeing the results of all of that. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on FNS on Air today. Thank you, Molly. All right, we are back at ASRM 2023 live in New Orleans, Louisiana. Well, not live to you all listening, but live recording this. And I am delighted for the second year in a row to be talking to a few of the residents in our Career Pathway program. And I think I said residents because in my mind, we already got you all to be applying an OBGYN <laughs> residency and then eventually REI fellowship. And I would like for them to introduce themselves. My name is Paris Bailey. Um, I am a second year medical student at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. Um, happy to be here. Hi, my name is Adair Castile. I'm also a medical student here in New Orleans. I go to LSU School of Medicine. I'm an MD MPH student, so I'm one of our dual degree students here. And again, I'm also happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm a third year medical student at LSU. And hello, my name is Madison. I'm also a third year at LSU New Orleans. Excited to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Awesome. So the program was created in order to give students such as yourselves exposure to REI because we know some medical students don't see anything in this field at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested to see and to know what you all have seen throughout the day. Give me your experiences. What has been great? What has been eye-opening? What have you kind of come across that has been like, oh, this is kind of what I want to do with the rest of my life? 
So I really enjoyed the poster sessions and the interactive sessions. It exposed me to a lot of the topics that go along with REI, including mental health and including other topics like donors of eggs and just different things. And so it's really interesting to see all those different perspectives, as well as talk to all of the physicians who have experience with REI and mental health. So. For me for specifically, it was interesting to see how many minorities are involved in REI because I honestly had no idea about that before going into this experience. So I think it's great that we also have representation so I know that this is possible for myself. I definitely agree with that. I didn't expect to see so much of me here, um, honestly. So that was very refreshing to see. It makes me feel more comfortable in the space. Uh, this was my first conference in general of this size for sure. So I got to walk through that expo mall. It was super interesting. It was my first glimpse at like networking with my mentor and she was walking me through, showing me all the, the goodies that are available. A lot the of information. sperm. There were <laughs> lots of sperm. Sperm was everywhere. That was new for me as well. But that was an amazing part of the experience, learning about the technology that's available for these physicians, conversation topics that I didn't even know were out in space at this time. It was really eye-opening. Let me ask you all, as medical students, do you feel like you had any insight into REI in general? I mean, do you feel, that, not to degrade your medical schools, but just I would say in medical school education in general, this is not something you usually see until probably your OBGYN rotation. And if that, people usually take their vacations on our REI blocks anyway. So I'm interested to see what you came in with. For me, I think this is my first time being exposed to this at all. I got introduced to it by Maddie. She knew I was interested in OB, and I didn't know that this particular subspecialty exists. I mean, I knew it exists, but I guess I didn't know to a certain extent, and being able to actually be here and understand it, and, and it's really an int interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think that there definitely could be more exposure. The way I got introduced to it was um, through my mentor, Dr. Richard Davis, who is actually an alum of LSU New Orleans. I had met her just in happenstance, and she introduced me to it, and I fell in love from then. Madison and I are third year, so we had a little bit of it during our endocrine block, but also I was vice president of our OB-GYN group, and we did have an REI come talk to us, but it definitely could be, you know, talked about a little bit more. It doesn't really hit home until you come to something like this, probably. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. So in terms of where you all are going from here, I mean, you all are third-year medical students, second-year medical students, you have residency applications probably coming up in a year and some change. Do you see a conference like this really impacting what your intentions could be uh, when you're applying to residency? For me, the topics that we've talked about, like we just came from one, like how to deliver bad news. So even if I don't go into anything reproductive-wise, I know everything I'm learning here today can be applied to every specialty, so mm -hmm. even though I'm keeping an open mind, I know I can use this information anywhere I go. I do agree, and I think that being here and in this program is important because we're building these connections, or if we do end up going in this field, that we'll have those connections built from today. And I think that um, seeing people in person who are what you want to be, like we kind of mm -hmm. touched on earlier, is really important. Networking is really important to know, you know, there are people in these fields, in these um, spaces that you can have connections with. And talk about the mentor program that you all are here for throughout the day. So how was it split up? What have you been doing with your mentors? What have they been exposing you to? So as far as I know with the mentor program, I don't know if they did this purposefully, but it seems like I was definitely paired with someone who had a similar background and interest to me. We were from the same hometown, which was super cool for me. 
And um, what I've gotten out of having a mentor that intimate, like one-on-one time, not necessarily just one person talking to a sea of faces, is um, we've talked about everything from a really intimate look and work-life balance, um, which is something that I was always curious about, having a position, sit down and say, you know, be real with me. If I go into this field, what's family life like? What's marriage like? What's kids like? Because that's something I care about. But we also have had time to have a very serious conversation about everything from application, even though I'm an L2, but looking into application, how grades go, how research goes, like those things. It's nice to have someone who is so intimately like for me in this moment for guidance, who can give me specific feedback on where I am right now in time, rather than I normally feel like a quote unquote mentor that you might get at your school might give more broad feedback. I really like the intimacy that's happening here today. And also our mentors have guided us through the whole conference. So we met them in the morning, we ate breakfast with them, we went to the opening ceremony, we went to the sessions. And so it's really nice to have someone with you to guide you because, you know, as medical students, we don't have a lot of experience with conferences Mm -hmm. and how to go about them the right way. So being able to be there with them and they showing us the ropes is really nice. Yeah, I think what you all are kind of alluding to with that, that one-on-one time is much different in this setting than it is in like an academic setting where they're going to be much more talking about either to a bunch of people or talking about just the field in general. But hopefully now you see how we live our lives. I mean, how mm-hmm. we're going about these conferences, how you could talk to them about family life, you could talk to them about their, their um, personal life and how that incorporates because it obviously does once you reach these levels um, into your work-life balance. So that's really great. So, you know, I just want to throw out a plug if anybody's listening to this out there and and this is our second year doing this and we've expanded. Last year we only, I think we had less than seven even uh, med students who are in the program and this year it's much more and every year we're trying to do it bigger and better. So if you're listening to this and you want to be a mentor next year while we're in Denver or maybe the year after when we're in San Antonio, please let us know. Reach out. Uh, We'd love to get more mentors and that way we could have more mentees and that way we could increase the pipeline. I think that's what this is all about. So we'd like to thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, look forward to seeing you all hopefully here in a few years on your own doing uh, abstracts and posters and orals and all those things. And I hope you enjoy it. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.